Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal. You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on ShockwaveSkullSessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. What is going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode here of the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Co-host and producer Matt Hartnett here with you from our studios in San Lorenzo, California. And uh, we're getting ready for episode number 53 right now. This is a really awesome one. Bob had a great conversation with book author Greg Renoff and Jimmy DeAnda of Sunset Strip 80s MTV Heavyweights, The Bullet Boys. A uh, really cool episode. This one's all about the infamous 70s rock producer, Ted Templeman, who is mostly well-known for all of his work with Van Halen, as well as the Doobie Brothers and Montrose, just to name a few others. In fact, Greg Ronoff has a new book coming out in a couple of weeks. On April 14th is the release date for Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. So uh, be on the lookout for that coming up in a few weeks. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and Get this episode going. Just to give you guys a heads up, we have a couple of other episodes in the works uh, ready to to get rolling this weekend and next week. So there'll be no shortage of any Shockwave Skull Sessions episodes during this whole quarantine stuff. So, uh, all right, well, here we go. Bob, Greg Renoff, and Jimmy DeAnda from the Bullet Boys. We got Jimmy DeAnda, drummer from the Bullet Boys, and the band is back together. And I know you guys were doing shows, and I assume, uh, just like every other band, uh, you've had to cancel the tours. But uh, tell us a little bit about the um, resurgence of the Bullet Boys with the original lineup. Well, I'll tell you what's crazy. is If you had told me last, even as as late as last summer, that I was going to be doing a Bullet Boys reunion uh, next year, I would have said, you're definitely, you need to get into the program. You should get off the drugs you're on because it's it's never going to happen. And again, we're talking that the last time I was in the band, fully in the band, was 25 years ago. And and, and I've been playing uh, drums for George Lynch from Dawkins for the last better half of like 10 years, you know, off and on on different projects with him. So I've had a home. I, I've been touring a lot and I, I've done some things here and there with different musicians. But what happened was, you know, I was doing a band with the three original members, which is the bass player Lonnie and the guitar player Mick and myself and we had and we had Andrew Freeman, who was in Last in Line. Sure. Um, you know, we Great put thing. a thing together called, yeah, we put a thing together called uh, Lies, Deceit, and Treachery. And, and a, a, a bunch of people who I worked with over the years asked, you know, you know, we'll put you out and let's get some work done. And we did that. And we were out there playing. And at one point, you know, I, I kind of looked around and I realized everyone's getting older. You know, I see how many bands are out there that wish they could actually reunite. You know, I'm sure the guys on Warrant wish they could have Janie Lane back. And I'm sure that Rat wishes Robin Crosby was still here or uh, Allison Chains wishes both the guys were back. I mean, you know, I got to a place in my life where I realized life is getting shorter on this side. And if I'm going to try this, you know, now's the time to do it. And, and I made a phone call to the bass player who was still in contact with the singer, Mark, at the time. And uh, um, it started little by little, just discussions here and there. But we want to make sure we do this right, because we've seen a lot of bands attempt to go back and don't kind of 
do it right, where there's still animosity or there's still issues and questions about certain business aspects. So I wanted to make sure, and the band wanted to make sure, that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're going to get a proper manager, a proper booking agent. So let them go out and cook the steaks, and then we just sit at home and eat them. So uh, I will say that we've got a great response. We have people that are, are, are helping the band get out there. And before this, the whole corona thing hit, you know, we had dates with, uh, uh, I think, Quiet Riot, and there were talks of Lita Ford and all these other bands that we toured back in the day. We're getting ready to go on and start playing these shows and some festivals and stuff. So um, we're really excited. The band's doing well at the moment. You know, the singer and myself, we've been working on some songs together over the last, like, week, well, before this thing kicked in for about 10 days. So we're just kind of now, like everybody else, idling until we can get back on the road and, uh, and get out there and play some rock and roll for the fans. So we're excited. All right. Well, dude, it's so great. It's always great to see the original lineups get back together. And that was something that was really cool about the Bullet Boys coming back. Because I know uh, Mark, Mark Torian, the singer, uh, obviously, he uh, had uh, the band with, with some other members. And they did, I know, a couple records, some good, some good albums and stuff. But it's always cool, you know, seeing that the band reunited, especially since all the guys are healthy and alive. And, you know, yeah. shit, man, it's, you know, get get the original guys, make it the real deal. And there's so few bands, even, I mean, obviously, from the 70s but even in the 80s you see just one drummer right. or one you know guitar player mm-hmm. carrying the name with all new right. guys and voila yeah. you know just just you know less than a year ago i hear you know yeah. you guys have reunited so great news and you got you doing any new recordings absolutely right now we're demoing at my place and, and you know that's what we're trying to do it's just demo we're not trying to create anything out of the ordinary as far as you know uh, get things to this next level um, we want to just put ideas down and sit back and listen to 10 or 12 songs and go, okay, here's where we are. Here's where we need to be. Or, you know, what do we think? You know, just kind of have an overview, you know, because I think a lot of bands, they get together and they try to just put things out immediately. We want to do that, but we want the songs to reflect of what the band is like today, even though we still sound like Full of Boys from the first three records, uh, which is really interesting because the songs really do sound somewhere in that, in that mix of those first three records. But, it's still, it's important for the band to really enjoy this time period because honestly, who knows how long it's going to last. You know, we're hopeful. Everybody's being cordial. Everyone's being nice. But um, I want to do it right. I want to do it with fun. I want to do it with the business right. So, again, you know, we're just really grateful that it's actually happening now. And uh, we're looking forward to getting back on the road. Hey, Our- Jimmy, can I, ask a, can I ask a quick question of Jimmy? Yeah. I was I don't know. Did um, When you guys start writing now, are you – are there things that you were able to go back from that were kind of unfinished ideas from 20 years ago, or is it pretty much all you know, fresh? Dude, that is so amazing that you just said that because that exactly happened with us. We were sitting around, and uh, and somebody said, remember that one song with this one track? And then once we talked about one idea, it was like after a while, like, what about that one? Oh, my God. And then we, we pulled out demos. Uh, Mick has demos. I have some, too. Uh, I'm still really close to which we both know. You know, we both know is Jeff Henderson that yeah. uh, was Ted Templeman's Right Man after Don Landy. And he just is, is going to send me like 20 demos from between the, uh, the the first and second record that he still has. So Amazing. we are definitely going back and we're revisiting some of those older songs and we're going to probably revamp them a little bit, you know, test them out and see what we have. But yeah, there was a lot of songs back then that I believe had potential, but Teddy had a vision for albums and what they were going to be like from top to bottom. So when he pulled the song, it was, it was more about the whole of, of, of the album and not right. just, you know, cause I like this one song, you know what I mean? 
<laughs> I love the way I love that you call him Teddy. <laughs> Teddy, yeah. And we're of course talking about Ted Templeman, which is actually the subject of this podcast. Our uh, second guest, of course, we got Greg Renoff, who is uh, the author of, uh, of course, Van Halen Rising, which I highly recommend. If anyone wants to get a complete look at Van Halen from their very, very early days as a uh, backyard party band to a club band to uh, the arena band, a fantastic book, Van Halen Rising. And you have a new book on Ted Templeman, of course, uh, most notably uh, Van Halen's producer, but he's produced everyone from uh, Doobie Brothers to, of course, a debut Montrose record. And the Bullet Boys, Mr. Ted Templeman. Uh, this book is coming out when, Greg? April 21st. So, of course, it's coming out in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, as we all know, like a lot of projects. And so um, Ted and I were going to appear at Vroman's in Pasadena, which, interestingly enough, um, in 1970, when Ted was done with his career as a uh, as a singer, he was in a band called Harper's Bazaar, he was going to quit the music industry and actually almost applied for a job there at Romans to work because he, he liked <laughs> books and was a history major. And so it's kind of funny. He's gone. He did the he did a, a book event with me for Van Halen Rising there. We were going to launch the book there in Pasadena on April 21st. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's uh, it all kind of uh, came full circle for Ted. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen this time around in terms of the event. But yeah, it comes out the book, you know, the book will be available on Amazon and anywhere else you can get books ebooks and hopefully god willing brick and mortar bookstores will be open but otherwise you know there's audible there's ebooks and that's all available but yeah and then hopefully the summer we'll get we'll get ted out of hibernation he was he was actually very interested in doing it he really did enjoy you know because he's a as uh jimmy knows he's a kind of a behind the scenes kind of guy he's teddy but he's also not a guy who's you know you're gonna necessarily people aren't gonna recognize him when he goes to the grocery store and he isn't seeking that type of attention but he really enjoyed it when we did the uh the book event for Van Halen Rising, he really, I think, was very surprised at the enthusiasm and people want to talk to him and ask him questions. And I think he really got, you know, um, invigorated by hearing people so uh, excited about the albums and the songs he worked on and all the projects he did with all these great bands. And so it was it was cool. So we're, we're uh, you know, he's he's uh, up at his place up north somewhere in the you know, Santa Cruz area. He's hanging out outside of L.A. and waiting, like all of us waiting for this all to clear. We can figure out what to do next. But, yes, it'll be out April 21st from ECW Press. Awesome, awesome. That's a is that a British company? ECW. It's a. It's a. They're based in uh, Toronto, Canada. So okay. that's where they. Uh, they actually have a, a really good uh, stance also in in, a, in the wrestling uh, writing, which is actually some of the really great books that I've done done in pro wrestling have, have uh, come out of ECW. But they do you know they do a wide variety of stuff, a lot of rock books and uh, a lot of pop culture books. So yeah, they were great on Van Halen Rising. They did great, and they've been excellent to work with. And I I really can't wait for people to see the book. It's really a, a really. Uh, was a labor of love for me to do with with Ted, as Jimmy knows, a great guy and amazing stories and amazing career, and just it was just a blast for me. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to reading it because I always think the producers. I love listening to podcasts uh, with producers and interviews because the producers know all the behind the scenes, and usually they were a lot less inebriated than a lot of the musicians <laughs> in the studio, so to speak. So they could tell you the real uh, behind the scenes stories of of how. Uh, uh, you know, the albums were made and some of the, the uh, tricks they use, which I always find so interesting, uh, especially when it comes to someone like uh, Ted Templeman, who worked on so many uh, classic records. And uh, he did, uh, Jimmy, he did uh, three Bullet Boys albums. You were on the first three, obviously, the debut, self-titled in 88, uh, Freak Show, which I'm actually looking 
on, there it is, on Wikipedia. Now, that was 91, and Zaza in 93. And uh, he, he right. did all three of those records, correct? Correct, yeah, he did. You know, when the debut record came out, it was a huge buzz and a great uh, debut album, of course, signed with Warner Brothers. And then, you know, we heard Ted mm-hmm. Templeman was was uh, producing it, which uh, right away gave you the tag as, you know, these guys are kind of Van Halen clones. But uh, tell, us, tell us your experience of, about working with Ted uh, uh, starting from the debut on. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, as a kid from Los Angeles, you know, we grew up on Van Halen. We grew up, you know, seeing like bands like Motley in the clubs and seeing Rat, you know, at the Troubadour playing to 27 people. So this band got to kind of like see it all, like see bands come to fruition we, we saw bands born and then go on to sell mi- uh, millions of records so growing up where i grew up in boyle heights you know we were huge van halen fans so but and, you know and we always look at you know remember there was a time we all looked at the back of the records and the name that always stood out was ted templeman was right there on all those van halen records and i remember just feeling like like that's the guy that that's like leading the charge with with this band and it just it, it was just it was epic so here we are, fast forward now to 1980, uh, early 88, and uh, the late, unfortunately, his sister just passed away not too long ago, Roberta Peterson. Uh, the band is actually doing uh, showcasing for labels in L.A., and I didn't know at the time Roberta Peterson was Ted Templeman's sister, but she came out, she's a, a, wow, a senior DP at Warner Brothers. Yeah, she came out, uh, uh, and she uh, she also signed Jane's Addiction. I mean, she, signed, she is epic in what she did as well. I mean, Flaming Lips. Uh, down the line, she signed a ton of bands. But anyways, so she came and saw us, and then it was so funny because she goes, you know, I really like you guys, but I don't think you're for me. I, I'm going to go ahead and call my brother and have my brother come see you guys. Now, I just thought it was her brother, like, put down the history. I didn't know. You know, so... So literally, wherever we, we dubbed the Piss Room, it's a room that was uh, by the train tracks out in this industrial city. And uh, lo and behold, just like in a freaking Van Halen video, a white Rolls Royce pulls up. And, and it's that Templeman, you know, and he comes out and he's, he's standing around the Piss Room, you know, because homeless people sat out in the back and that's when they urinated. So we cut back the Piss Room smell. So Teddy came in. And, and we're, you know, it's just, it's an amazing, I mean, it's like, it's a dream come true, you know? And uh, so he sits down and he says, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to play songs. And when I've heard enough, I'm going to raise my hand. And we're like, okay, we, you know, we go up there and it's, it's battle mode. It's full battle mode. This is the time of my life. Uh, we all know that, that this is the moment we've all been waiting for. So first song hits and we're crushing it. Oh my God. I mean, people are flying off drum risers. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's a full circus. And then very calmly, after the first chorus, his hand goes up slowly and just, do, 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 do. And we all look at him like, is that it? I guess and he, goes, he goes, okay, yes, next song. And then we go to the next song. And then it's just, he did that about five times. And then we stopped. And at one point, I thought, oh, shit, he does not dig the band. He has stopped every song right after the first chorus. And does, we haven't even got to the lead section on some of these songs. Damn it. It was, we were really, I know I was stressing out. And then he says, okay, guys, he goes, why don't you guys come down, come over here, sit with me. And we sat down right in front of them. And he goes, here's why you guys should sign with Warner Brothers Records. And we literally <laughs> just said, are you kidding me? Sign the, sign the papers right now. Let's go. There's no discussion after this point. 
you know, so then he took us, he took us from zero to 60. I mean, we were essentially an unknown band, you know, and you're right. You know, we were in the shadow of one of the biggest rock bands in the history of music, Bob. I mean, we were, you know, uh, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but people at the at Warner Brothers at the label were saying, you know, this is the next Van Halen. And for me, that gave me a bad feeling because I know there is no next Van Halen. Yeah. There's only mm -hmm. one Van Halen, just like there's only one Ted Templeman. You start saying stuff like that, and, and that always made me feel like fans might, you know, go, ah, I'm not into that. But, you know, Teddy was so good, and this is what he did, when, like he said, with Doobie Brothers and Montrose and, and all the bands and, and, and Captain Deepheart. He somehow allows the bands to record and be the bands, but then he still always finds a way to make them better in, in, in that uh, uh, in the studio and in that process. And, and he helps to improve songs on the spot. He can take a song that's that's great and then say, you know what, Jimmy, why don't you uh, not play the first two bars and come in on the end of three on the third bar? And it's stuff like that that make you go, like when you're rocking out in your car and it comes out, you're like, whoa, that's cool. I mean, he's got that kind of melody. He also has perfect pitch. I remember we'd be sitting there blowing the doors off in the studio over at One on One, and he'd hit the talk back, and we'd all stop, and he'd go, uh, Mick, uh, your B string is flat. And sure enough, he'd tune <laughs> up, and he was just fence off. Like, he could tell that stuff. And, and so this is the man who, uh, for me personally, taught me so many great things as far as, you know, learning how to mix yourself in the studio, like me, myself, behind the drum set. Because remember, you said it, though, Greg, but also Teddy was the drummer of mm -hmm. uh, Harper's Bazaar. A lot of people don't know that either. He was the drummer. So this is a, a man who understood rhythms and understood melodies and knew production value. Because he also, remember, a Lenny Warner, who was the president of Warner's, was his producer back when he was at Harper's Bazaar. So this is like lineage. This is like the guys who really built the sounds that we were listening to, like they did in Motown, like those cats did. Teddy and these guys in Mo Austin, they were building this entire rock and roll community for us back in the late 60s and the early 70s with Montrose and then, of course, Van Halen and down the line. So for me... Uh, I, I was born into this being blessed by this this man who just knows so much about the industry and knows so much about production value and how to be a really heartfelt musician. That's the thing I learned from Teddy, you know, how to actually play from the heart. You know, that was a really good thing that I learned from him. I was going to jump in and say that I was on another um, podcast with Jimmy a couple of years ago and he told a great story about, about Ted, which I think really captures Ted's quality as a guy who was an artist himself and as he will tell you and we talk about in the book that he was he would always tell you you know i wasn't a very good performer or i wasn't a great singer mm. he was just sort of he was always called himself kind of a mediocre um right. pop musician but he had a real empathy for people who were trying to record in the studio and he was you know he uh, jimmy you told that great story about how ted came out and sat with you that would be a great story yeah. to share because i thought that was like one of the stories that really like i told Ted that story and he was kind of like oh yeah you know but that's kind of like he was sort of like of course I would do that but I can imagine a lot of the other producers wouldn't treat people their artists oh, like no. that are you kidding me I mean that was and that was the reason why that that I'll tell you the story but what happened Bob was that um I was it was it was literally the first week we had just got all the drums up and we had you know Teddy and I which is really amazing experience to go through each snare drum we had like 27 snare drums and like six bass drums and we kind of got like the three that we liked and we finally settled on drum tone and we were really happy and Ted was happy because I really I, I don't at the time I was 19 years old I didn't I didn't know good from bad drums 
Um, but sonically, he knew what he could work with best. That's why I think that first Bull Boys album sounds so good. And the drums sound amazing. But um, we were sitting there and we were trying, we were on a, a day one and we're tracking a track that's actually fairly simple. Uh, it's a, the song Kiss and Kitty. And uh, we were going after it. And then um, probably somewhere in the, in the middle of the first verse, I hear the talk back. And anybody who's ever been in the studio, when, when a producer hits the talk back button, it mutes everything in the room, meaning your instruments and vocals, and it's just his voice solely. So it sounds like almost like God talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this, there's a mute, and it's like, uh, hold on. And then we all stop and like, whoa, shit. And then and we're looking, and, and this is that huge glass window that you've seen in movies throughout your whole life if you haven't been to the studio. And I look in there, and he goes, uh, so uh, hold on, you guys. Let's go again. Okay. So then we go again, and I start playing. I, and I, I start the song off. The drum starts the song. And then we do it again, and this time I get a little further, and then Ted goes, uh, and then there's a talk back. Well, hold on a second. And then I, then you, now that thing starts happening where he's talking to the engineer, and nobody can hear what, what they're saying, and he's talking to Jeff Hendrickson, and I'm like looking around like, oh, shit, are they talking about me? And I, cause I've heard the horror stories at that time where, where bands are recording, and a producer will change out the drummer right at the top of the record and they call someone like Kenny Aronoff in and then that guy does the record and you don't do the record or Anton Fig, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, sh my stomach is turning. I'm like, oh my God, I think they're going to replace me. Like, oh my God. And so Ted goes, uh, Jimmy goes, uh, let's go one more time and just, you know, let's have some fun. I said, okay. So we do it. We don't even get to the verse this time. And then he hits the talk back button and he goes, uh, hold on a second, you guys. And then, uh, and then now, now I feel nauseous. Now I feel like I'm literally, I'm going to puke. And, uh, and then there's two doors, and I see him walk through the first door, and it's like, shh. And he comes to the second door. And he looks at the guys, and he goes, hey, guys, uh, can you guys give us, uh, give us 10? And then I like, and I go, me, Ted? He goes, no, 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 just sit down. And then the guys walk out, and now I swear, I know, I know I got beads of sweat on my forehead. And he had, there's a piano that was behind me, and he pulls up the piano chair next to me, and then uh, he says, uh, he goes, how are you doing? And I go, I, I'm good at it. I, I go, I think I'm okay. He goes, everything okay? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he goes, I just want to come out and talk to you for a second. I said, okay. And he goes, so where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from East L.A. I'm from Boy Heights down the way. And he goes, oh, man. He goes, yeah, yeah. And then, he, you know, we just start rapping about, like, small, mundane stuff, nothing really too, you know, poignant. And then at that time, it's about 11.30, maybe uh, closer to 1, probably. And then uh, uh, I see one of the runners come through the studio, those two same doors with a six-pack of Heineken. And then uh, he comes out, and the guy puts the Heineken on the floor, and Teddy goes, uh, you want a beer? And I said, are you having one? He goes, yeah. So pop, pop, we pop over there and we, we start talking and he says, uh, he goes, so he goes, you know, just, just small stuff, just kind of, and then we finish our beer and looks at me and he goes, you ready to do this? I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, let's go. He goes back in the room and he goes, rolling. And I do the song and that take from top to bottom is the take you hear on the record. Mm. Now, later down the line, I asked Teddy, I said, Teddy, go, what was that about? And he goes, Jimmy, he goes, I could tell, he goes, I know you're a great drummer, but you were so nervous that you kept looking at this window at me, like I can tell you were overwhelmed, you're drumming, you, your tempo was out of, out of this world, you were playing too fast, you had no groove, and you, I could just tell you were nervous, and I just wanted to just help you to relax a little bit, and I knew by talking to you, you were going to relax. And he goes, and you did, 
and that's the pick that's on the record. Wow. So that to me is like the quintessential about what a producer should know about when he has a band at his disposal where he can help to bring them up to this level that they Mm -hmm. aren't at yet. So when he did that, that taught me a lot about musicianship, about compassion in the industry, about, you know, how musicians should help each other and so on. But uh, but that's always, that's one of my, my dearest memories of uh, working with Jeff Templeman's uh, story right there. Great story. Wow, great story. And that's a thing about uh, people don't realize that that's a sign of a great producer. And people don't give producers enough credit. It's not they're just spinning knobs and, and getting the sound. It's a matter of exactly. getting the artist to perform at his absolute best. And whatever ways Absolutely. they have to do that and you know again that's that's something that a lot of people overlook go into bullet well, boys though before we get get into uh, ted templeman uh you know it's interesting because i you know i grew up in la I, I saw all the you know bands in the clubs you know as you did you know motley crew rat and you know uh right. wasp and armored saint and you know uh, growing up oh, in yeah. la going to the troubadour the country club all those great bands and Bullet Boys kind of came out as an enigma. We, you know, I knew of, of Mark Torian. <laughs> he spent a little time with Rat. I think I might have actually seen him in one of right. Rat's early lineups. Right. And of course, he also, uh, you know, auditioned for uh, Ozzy after Randy Rhodes. And we all knew him as a guitar player. And then we heard, you know, I, I, I remember first hearing about Bullet Boys and Mark Torian singing. I go, wow, he's a singer. And he's got this new band, and it just kind of came out from nowhere. They're on Warner Brothers. You know, I mean, did you guys actually gig out in L.A. under Bullet Boys? Did you play shows before well, signing? What happened was, was uh, uh, so the guys were in the uh, the last lineup that was King Cobra. Okay. Oh, okay. And, uh, that's right. That's, that's common, right. That's right. Yeah, a piece of band. And Mick Suede was actually the original guitar player for King Cobra. So he came, that was his whole world for a minute. And then apparently Carmine had went to go back and do Vanilla Fudge reunions and other things of that nature and just didn't have time for that band at the moment. So Mick, Mark, and Lonnie uh, wanted to start a new band. So they did. They had a different drummer for a short period that it ended really bad with them. I think they almost beat him up at, at a show somewhere. I, it was, I remember it was just a bad experience. But wow. uh, what happened, I, I, now I have known Mark Turing since I was uh, like 12, 13 years old. I've known Mark because in our area, he was the most famous musician we had ever known and the most talented for that matter. Like he said, when, when we were kids, he had a band just called Turing and he was the lead singer guitar player. So then he would do jury songs, sound just like Steve Perry. And then play all the, the the solos like Eddie Van Halen was in Journey, and it was just it was so mm. odd to see so much talent in one human being. So uh, he went and saw me play drums. He used to give my brother guitar lessons, so he saw me play drums, you know, in my my teens, right, you know, early on. And then he came to me when I was about seventeen years old, and he saw me play somewhere, and he goes, "Jimmy, he goes, you're an amazing drummer. He goes, when you're old enough, I'm gonna come back and get you." And I said, "Right, let me know." And uh, and lo and behold. My phone rings. I'm 19 years old, and he says, "Hey, bro, I got this band, Bullet Boys, and we're we're just we we've done like a few shows, and our drummer we had to kick him out of the band. I want you to be the drummer for this band." So uh, I went in, and the, uh, they had the manager, Dave Kaplan, who is still uh, a guy that I work with on a regular basis. Dave Kaplan had had things lined up for the band, but I wasn't aware of most of the stuff. But he had, I think we, I think we did six shows in total. And then we began doing the uh, showcasing process. So we only did six shows. And the next time people had seen me play was on MTV. And it was, it literally had happened that fast. It was, it was under, I think we did the record in a month. 
Uh, Teddy mixed it like in like no time at all. And then uh, we were on the road in September of that of '88. So I joined the band. I went in February, and then by September we were opening for Cheap Trick in in the arenas. I mean, it was just it was a lightning bolt of uh, of uh, the experience. I, just, I I still look back and go, wow, that happened overnight. So uh, we were truly again, we were truly blessed that, that it just it, it took off so fast and people loved it. So we were happy. So was it your first time being in the studio when you recorded the first Bullet Boys album with Ted, or did you actually? <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. So you never did so any demos or anything, first, huh? Well, I mean, like, look, you did demos in your friend's house with an eight track recorder. <laughs> that's you know, I, right. I don't know if that's the same thing, but you. You know, uh, that was my first real studio that had, you know, sound baffles and had actual, you know, uh, rooms that, that housed amplification and, and had, you know, separating buildings for mixing process. I mean, it was a, you know, one-on-one studios where Metallica did a black record sure. and Aerosmith did records and, you know, I mean, down the line. So it was, uh, that to me is like one of the best studios in the world. And I've now been in other ones, but uh, one of the things that, that I want you guys to listen to when you guys listen to the song for the love of money, mm-hmm. the low end on that kick drum is coming from the 64 inch speakers that were on either side of the drum set that Ted had one microphone going to from the bass drum to the monster speakers that were, they look like, like cars that uh, that's the low end process that he wow. used to get my low end kick drum sound. So things like that. I remember so vividly, like he is just such a genius when it comes to natural tones and not processing and gating and making things sound like their studio. You know, they just no. we happen to be in the studio, but and nothing should sound like Van Halen never sounded like a studio recording band. It was clean recording so you could hear the music. But Van Halen sounded like Van Halen, Absolutely. just like Montrose did. Yeah. You know, it's like the Doobies did. That was the band, you know. So that's what, again... I mean, I, I love other producers. Everybody's freaking great. But Teddy, to me, always found a way to allow the band sound like the band. And that's that's one of the hardest tricks to do, I think, as a producer. Absolutely. You guys had a real dream team, too, on that that uh, those records you had. At least the first one, you had Toby Wright as the assistant, if I yeah. remember correctly, who did Metallica that's and correct. wrote Alice in Chains. And you had uh, yeah. Jeff Hendrickson, who Ted brought out a power station in New York City, who had done had been an assistant on records by like Sheik and David Bowie and then did the David Even Bowie. Smile record and all that stuff. I mean, you, like, you guys had like the Sonic Dream Team, those three guys. I, I got to say, you know, Jeff, Jeff Henderson to this very day, to this day, I mean like yesterday, I will call him for, for production questions and then he will say, Jimmy, you're overthinking it. You, you've gone off the, off the reservation. What you've got to do is stop and go back to zero. And remember, you're just recording this experience of you playing the drums you're not trying to blah 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 and that and i always get great information from jeff to this very day he will help me with microphones and and suggestions on how to do things so yeah you're right that was a dream team we were very very lucky to have those guys all right well let's let's uh, talk to ted templeman and uh you could get into some juicy stories uh, in, in the book uh, here, Greg. But uh, going back, you know, we'll concentrate. I mean, obviously, he's, he's done a, an array of production. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, from the Doobie Brothers and Captain Beefheart to uh, Little Feet, Montrose, of course, uh, up till Van Halen. But, you know, we'll concentrate on more of the metal stuff. But uh, one of his early albums, uh, to get back to the Doobie Brothers, was uh, a 71 when he uh, first started. I'm seeing here was uh, co-produced by uh, Lenny Warrenker from uh, uh, Warner Brothers. So uh, I, I guess uh, he was still on Harper's Bazaar at the time in 71, no? So Harper's Bazaar, 
had basically kind of fallen apart by the beginning of 1970. So it's interesting. So Ted, as I mentioned earlier, Jimmy had mentioned, Ted was had been in a band called Harper's Bazaar. That's how actually Ted got involved with Warner Brothers. Ted was in a band called, it was first called the Tiki's. Tiki's eventually turned into Harper's Bazaar. They were signed by Warner Brothers in 1966. They put out a song uh, that came out in, in uh, early 1967, a single called Feeling Groovy, the cover of the um, Simon and Garfunkel song. It came out a pop hit. It made a record with Lenny Warnker, and they would make four records with Lenny Warnker, who, who um, as Jimmy mentioned, became kind of Ted's mentor going forward. So 1970 rolls around. Uh, Harper's Bazaar has kind of run its course. They were, they were, you know, they were a, I would call a sunshine pop band. They were like the third dimension mm-hmm. or fifth dimension, excuse me. Okay. Um, your mamas and the papas. They were that type of a group. Yeah. And things had the music scene had kind of changed. Things had gotten a lot heavier and more, much more political in terms of lyrics. And they, that wasn't their thing. And so they, they uh, amicably broke up. And then Ted was trying to figure out what to do. And as I, I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, the conversation. Ted was actually thinking about leaving the music industry, but Lenny and um, Lenny's wife, actually, who was a friend of Ted's as well, they were all, the couples were friends, Ted's wife was friends, and all, they were all friends together, was basically really encouraging Ted, well, don't quit the industry, you know, stick stick it out and see what you can do. And so Ted started putting out basically resumes to become a tape listener, which is, you know, the, at the time was kind of the, the very entry level and job you could have in the music industry. You, it was... It was as it might you might imagine. It was bands would send in demos or or producers, independent producers or booking agents, whoever would just send you. Know, I got this band. They would try to get they would try to get a deal with Warner Brothers. And eventually, what happened is that Ted did get a job with Warner Brothers, but it was not immediate. Ted actually in the book talks quite a bit about going to these different record labels and basically, you know, Ted had been a a minor pop star. Um, you know, he was someone who, if you mentioned Harper's Bazaar, they would know who he was and stuff like that. But he would get all these no's from all these different um, labels in town. And he was pretty, pretty despondent. Um, not that he expected the door to be wide open, but basically no one would even give him a chance, like like an entry-level job. Eventually, Warner Brothers, um, and Lenny particularly, was able to get him a job. And one of the things that Ted ended up discovering, one of the bands Ted ended up discovering, was a band called the Doobie Brothers. The tape came down from... Um, Northern California, actually, um, if I remember correctly, um, Pacific Studios, the, the gentleman who owned Pacific Studios, that's where the demo had been recorded, the Doobie Brothers demo, got sent down to Warner Brothers, he brought it to Lenny, Lenny liked them as well, um, the, the thing about the Doobie Brothers is kind of interesting was that their early stuff particularly was, was um, much more acoustic, so, you know, they did, they did some, like, jamming, stuff live it might be a little bit heavier but they're they're kind of they were much more like a crosby stills and nash kind of sound was kind of their main line of their sound and when ted and lenny went up to see them play ted said he was very struck by the fact that they were playing they had these like these great um two-part harmonies where um tom johnson and pat simmons do these harmonies together and yet they were wearing leather in fact they were playing in front of bikers so ted tells these funny stories about going up to this biker bar in san jose with Lenny Warnker, and these guys are both like look like they walked off. Like, you know, they Ted say we look like we walked off a college campus. We're wearing like our, yeah. our slacks <laughs> and our like you know our button down sweaters and stuff right. like that. And like we're these like guys with their chains and their old ladies. He's like literally Hell's Angels. It was like that type of biker bar. But they you know they they liked the group and um, they got a deal. Basically, Lenny and, and Ted were able to get a deal for for the Doobie Brothers on Warner Brothers, and in doing so. Joe Smith, who was one of the executives at Warner Brothers, who was kind of a you know partner to Mo Austin, 
said, well, you know, you, you seem you discovered this band, and you seem, you seem to know what they're about to. You should produce it with Lenny. And Lenny was all for that, and that's how that happened, that Ted got a chance to produce. Wow. Yeah, and so the, the album, the first album, in effect, flopped. And Ted is very appreciative of the fact that, you know, he had Lenny at his side, obviously, because if it had been like a Ted Templeman production alone, and the record had flopped, Ted said that probably would have been the last record I ever produced. Wow. But uh, in the book, one thing that's really interesting, I think Jimmy will appreciate it, and other people will too, and talking about the psychology of, of making records, Ted spent a lot of time talking about that first Doobie Brothers records and thinking about, he said, the mistakes that he had made as a producer. And I'll give you one story that's in the book that Jimmy will appreciate, particularly is that he, he said that, you know, you, you want to make it perfect as a producer. It's your first, your first album, and you're trying to make it perfect, and you're working with this other person who has more experience than you, and so you're trying to prove yourself. And, and Ted said, you know, a lot of times I just, I made mistakes like when, when the Judy Brothers drummer would be rushing, he, Ted said he would stop him and hit the talk back and go, you're rushing, let's take it again. And he said that would just like blow the whole vibe for the room. And like Ted didn't say he wasn't trying to be hard on the guy, it was just like he thought like, okay, I need to tell him, right? Instead of like yeah. learning to how to like finesse that situation. Mm. And so Ted talked a lot about that first Doobie Brothers record as a, as a learning experience to walk away and go, I did a lot of things that now I know those were the wrong things to do and I kind of learned from my mistakes and went going forward. Um, and the second Doobie Brothers record is Toulouse Street is the one that actually became a huge, huge smash. That one came out in 1972 and had listened to the music, Rocking Down the Highway, oh, right. Jesus is Just All Right, all those, you know, just a, a monster, monster hit for them. And yeah. But that was, yeah, that was Ted's first experience as a producer was the Doobie Brothers. Again, he'd done some, like, you know, a little bit of stuff with Harper's Bazaar where he would have been, like, an assistant producer, but as, like, you know, your name on the record, the whole nine yards, the big, the big deal, that was the one. Right on. Well, let's, uh, I mean, again, just to give a time frame, this was, like you said, uh, 1971, the debut Doobie right. Brothers, and he right. kept real busy. I mean, in 71, he did the, the Van Morrison album, he did Captain Beefheart, you know, Little Feet in 72, and uh, moving to 1973, a all-time classic, which I consider one of the greatest American hard rock metal albums uh, to come out. I think uh, the both of you have probably agree with me, was the debut Montrose, self-titled Montrose album. Absolutely. You can listen to that today, and it still sounds just <laughs> as modern as, I mean, it's, it's just such a brilliant sound, and that was really one of the first, like, what you would call arena rock sounds. I mean, the guitars, mm -hmm. and I really think the first Van Halen album was really structured from this first Montrose album. Mm -hmm. It was uh, just, yeah, right. you know, guitars, bass, drums, but the guitar tone that he got on, you know, uh, oh. you know, Rock Candy, Bad Motor Scooter, he was pretty much the house producer for Warner Brothers by this time. Is that correct? Right. So, that, right. So there was about five or six guys who would have been on the A&R team for Warner Brothers. Um, you know, Lenny Warrenker, um, you know, the, the Russ Heidelman, some a bunch of other guys who were kind of on there. But right. So mm -hmm. you would basically, if you were one of those guys you were basically only producing house with so occasion. He did a couple of Geffen albums, but that, that really was just a, a formality because Geffen was distributed by Warner's anyway in the eighties. So that was like, you know, he did like Aerosmith record and stuff like that for Geffen. It was really like you were doing basically working for Warner brothers just with being, you know, the, the record label was, was Geffen. But yeah. So when Montrose came along, Ted signed Montrose and what had happened is that Ronnie Montrose had played on the, I, I believe both, if my memory serves, both of the records uh, that uh, Ted did with Van Morrison oh, as really? a guitar player. Oh, wow. um, so that. he played on, um, you know, like on Wild Night, that beginning guitar oh, lick sure. 
of Wild Mike. That's Ronnie Montrose. Wow. And that's so a- Ronnie, like a lot of people work with Van Morrison, you know, he kind of had a short shelf life. Van was, uh, you know, Van was what Van, he was, he was a, a genius, but he was a bit temp- tempestuous and didn't have a lot of patience for people. So for whatever reason, Ronnie left and um, went on. He worked with Edgar Winter and Ted had always said to Ronnie, hey, if you look ever come up with another a band project, you know, call me if I'm in a position to help you, I will. And that's what ended up happening was that in 1972 or 70, I guess probably early 73, Ronnie sought out Ted and Ted said, well, come on my house. Ted had a house in Pasadena and Ronnie came over and they basically sat and I, I, Ronnie played him demos or sort of played him the song ideas and, and then talked about how he was, he was putting this band together or had put it together. I'm not quite sure um, off the top of my head, my memory was, but he had guys who were in, in effect, Two guys were unknown. It would have been Carmasi and Hagar were both unknown. But then Ooh. Bill Church, who was the bass player, am I right? Remember right? Bill Church right, played yep. bass. Yeah. In, uh, played head blade bass for Van Morrison too. So basically, Church and Montrose had known each other from the Montrose and Ted, and then they brought in these two unknown guys to play this band called Montrose. And yeah, then, then Ted Ted signed them. They did a they did some demos and some early tracking at Wally Hyder up in uh, San Francisco. But then did most of the record, if I remember correctly, at Amigo, which is now long gone. That was the Warner Brothers studio. And then at Sunset Sound. And Sunset Sound Studio One, which is kind of the famous room that had the, the great drum sound. And that's where the Rock Candy drum sound was done at Studio One. And in, in, uh, that's where they cut that, that track. Wow. 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 That's amazing. That's interesting that these guys, uh, you know, coming from someone like Van Morrison, that was very kind of mainstream, kind of jazzy kind of sound into something so heavy. I mean, that first Montrose album, I mean, it's around the same time Aerosmith was just coming out. And there yeah. weren't that many American, you know, hard rock metal bands, uh, you know, so to speak. Uh, right. At the time, you know, Nugent right. and the Amboy Dukes and, you know, uh, you know, you had a few other bands, but that album was just an absolute groundbreaker. And one of the most underrated albums i'm just curious did did uh ted bring out the heaviness of that album or, or was that something that ronnie was into doing something so heavy because it's it's night and day from anything you know from van morrison here's what i would say about that i said that that ted really emphasized when i talked to him about ronnie he said that ronnie was a guy who could have been a studio musician in other words he could have been one of these first he could have been like steve lukather like a guy you would call like like i need a guitar part done and ronnie did a lot of did, did sessions for ted over the years but he said the thing that he always knew about ronnie from watching him with van morrison he said this guy had this real he could play this incredibly heavy you know less paul stuff that, that ted knew he could do or sort of had sort of seen but obviously never in the context of van morrison he knew he was, he was a great rock guitarist but he said he had this great pop sensibility where he knew how to throw in these little licks and things that were made songs catchy and he said that's when he talked to Ronnie. Ronnie was like, yeah, I want it to be heavy, but I don't want it to be like Sabbath. You know, they, they was, the idea was Ted always says this phrase. He said, I wanted, you know, Ronnie wanted, and I thought it was a great idea to do a heavy metal band with a sense of humor. And what he meant like that was just meant to be like more of a fun-loving, upbeat pop rather than sort of like the world is going to come to an end. Like a lot of heavy metal lyrics, you know, especially the early 70s, there was a lot of that, you know, Alice Cooper, a lot of that more, um, you know, darker sabbath type of stuff and that was what they wanted they wanted to make basically heavy rock that would have pop appeal yeah you know and other bands did like you know um purple did that with smoke in the water obviously but other bands but that's what they were more they were going for so that i think that was the idea to kind of combine the catchy choruses and the 
you know, the, um, the, the catchy riffs with that heavy drum sound and that heavy guitar sound. And, but I, I will tell you too, and Jimmy, will probably appreciate this particularly is that Ted said that the Montrose record taught him a, a big, big lesson as well, because he said when he and Don Landy had gotten done with it, Don Landy, of course, then went on, of course, work with Ted on Dude Brothers, Van Halen, Little Feet, all this stuff. They had, he was they the engineer, they, just so people know. Right, right. Yeah. Right. This incredible sounding record that Don had gotten these incredible tones. Ronnie was a student. He said Ronnie was completely at home in the studio and was kind of a gearhead himself. So there was like a lot of like, you know, he and Don were working together and just like Eddie Van Halen and Don Landy did the same thing. But he said that Ronnie and, and Don really tuned in. He said he thought we had the, the great team together working in the studio, but the album didn't really sell. It just basically disappeared from, you know, got to like 150 or something on the charts and then disappeared. Wow. And he said, that was my wake up call. He said, you know what? We didn't have a song that was catchy enough to play mm. an AM radio. And they said, that was wow. the mistake. Like with the Doobie Brothers, all their hits went on AM. Like listen to the music, they were huge. That was the pop, the pop uh, format at the time. And he said, you know, he said, um, you know, at the time, FM stations would play Space Station number five or something like that. But they, there was no made-to-order pop radio hit. And he said, that's one of the reasons why he wanted to make sure that there was a song on the first Van Halen record, like You Really mm. Got Me. That would be something that would get on the. He said that we needed something. He said I knew they'd like Van Halen written songs that had like Jamie's crying. He thought they said these songs had had pop potential, but he said I, we needed something that was an absolute kind of basically break the door down, so no one could say, eh, they're okay. You know, they've got some good guitar riffs and stuff, but you needed something that was going to basically break them into the public, the public eye. Now that was a song that the, the band had already. Ted didn't like hand them. You really got me. They were actually playing. You really got me in the clubs, and when Ted heard them. Um, the first night he heard them, they played that song. So that was a song they already had in their repertoire. But that's why he won. He said, I was never going to make that same mistake because we didn't have a, we did not have a pop song on the Montrose record. He said it just, it bugged him. To this day, it bugged him that it, it never, that it didn't break through at the time. I mean, he knows it's now seen as a, a seminal heavy rock record. But he, at the time that those guys, that basically that Montrose didn't get anywhere because that first record kind of flopped. Well, you know, that's interesting you say that because a lot of people, uh, you know, especially the younger people that, uh, that aren't familiar with radio and how it worked back then, but it w was all about in the early 70s about the AM hit because FM radio didn't really start taking off until the late 70s is when FM, they call it more album-oriented radio, where yeah. the AM radio, which everyone listened to, it was all about the hit radio, the three-minute hit songs. And that's really what right. you needed to do. And people, you know, have to realize this was... You know, the 70s, this was before MTV. You didn't have any visuals. It was all about getting on the radio and touring. Right. And I don't right. think Montrose did a whole lot of touring here in the U.S. I know they toured. Um, uh, they were real big in France and, and other places throughout Europe. But that was a, a real shame about that album. And, of course, that was the album that really introduced Sammy Hager to the public. Does, does yes. he talk yeah. about well, no. Oh, go, go ahead, But not that, you guys, but... That's also the band and the record that spawned a ton of other bands that ended up being the sound of the 70s. Because anybody who listened to that band, I don't care who you were, when you came out that time period, over the next 10 years, all those bands were influenced by that one record. You know, that record was so seminal. I, I, I still, like you said, I'll put that record on this very day and go, this is the perfect record. Yep. It's, you know, it's a rare thing to have that, that, that Teddy did. And, you know, and again, you guys, to talk about the, the genius of Ted is that you know, a lot of producers could have jacked that record up. They yeah. could have overthought it. They could have overproduced it. They could have had too many harmonies going on. They could have had too much inner working with, you know, musicians on the, on the recordings. But they kept it a four-piece. 
and they kept it, and Teddy kept it exactly the way he knew it should sound in, at the end, and that's something that he hears in the beginning, and that's the thing that, again, you know, he knows how to let bands be the band. That's what's great about him. Absolutely. And that's a great thing about uh, Ted Templeman. I'm glad you bring that up. That so many producers, especially in that period of the 70s when you had all the progressive oh, yeah. rock bands like Genesis and Yes, and they were doing all these kind of experimental kind of things. Uh, he was a yeah. very simplistic producer. It was raw, you know, guitars, bass, drums, but he got the ultimate tones. I mean, you listen to Rock Candy, you mentioned the drum tone uh, on that. I mean, oh. it's that, that John Bonham bigness. Of, of of drums yeah. and the guitar tone yeah. on that is just unreal. Like I said, that was basically the album was a blueprint, as you said, Jimmy, for so many uh, bands in the field, particularly Van Halen. You know, I mean, that really yeah. just drums, bass, guitar, killer tones, and that's it. And that was something that was that was really magical because a lot of times producers will do that. Oh, let's add this in. Let's add this keyboard yeah. or a horn section, and and then you know it, it's just like no, no, you know. But uh, yeah. I, I remember what time I remember what time talking to Tommy Lee, and then and, and I asked him how he felt about the first Motley record, and he said he didn't like it. And I said why? He goes because it didn't sound like Montrose. <laughs> that's what the guys who have successful records don't go. It didn't sound like Montrose. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a great thing. You know? <laughs> the the other thing that's interesting too, and I I, I say this, and of course with Jimmy on the line, is that um you know if you listen on go on YouTube, you can hear the demo for Rock Candy. Mm. which I'm not sure, I assume Ted was involved with it, the demo for it, that they, they cut it in the studio and Ted was there, but the tempo between the demo and the final, the studio cut, is different, and that to me, like Ted didn't, I said that to Ted, I said, did you change the tempo? And he's like looking at me with a smile, and he goes, probably, like he didn't want to like, say that, you know, Denny didn't, he doesn't remember, he could have been Denny, maybe it was Ronnie, right. came, but, the, but the tempos, like that, with the, that type of stuff where Ted was, you know, I think from talking to people, so good at that type of like, just the oh. little, you know, rather than going like, let's put, you know, like you said, like a 40 piece orchestra on this to change, let's right. just change the tempo. That's all we need to do is to twist this little, little bit to make it really sing. Yeah. That's the one thing that I, uh, honest to goodness, I can really uh, recall so specific with Teddy is he would come and he would hit the top back and go, the tempo's wrong. And then I'd go, what's it supposed to be? And he goes, he goes, he goes, let's let's play the song, Jimmy, don't play drums, just you guys play. And they would play the riff. And then he would look at Mark singing the line by himself in the control in, in his own booth there. And then he would he would come out. And this is see, this is the thing. I didn't know this, you guys. I didn't know Ted's history when Bullet Boys did the first record. I learned this all after. And this guy came out to my drum set and he goes, uh, give me the six. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then I, I gave him the six and I and he goes, get up. And I got up and I got I walked with the drums and then he looked at the guys and he goes one, two, and then he played the drum beat and I was like, what the hell's going on right now? And then so it wasn't until like I think lunch. So you weren't aware that he was a drummer and Harper's Bazaar, huh? I, I, again, yeah. I get, all I know Ted Templeman is from Van Halen at the time. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until years later that I you know went back and then the Captain Beefheart and of course the Montrose and so on and Doobies and stuff. But you know, I look at him at lunch and I go. Teddy, I go, you play drums? And he goes, well, he's not, I'm not very good. But yeah, that, that was my first instrument. And I said, oh, oh I, now, I, now I love you more than ever. You know, he's a drummer, man. <laughs> so yeah, that was a great experience to see Ted actually show me the part. He goes, here's what you got to play. And he played the part. So, you know, he, he understands that that concept, of the pulse. The, if the drums aren't right, if that rhythm isn't right, it's gonna, he's going to sit there and look at you and go, it's not right, man. 
so that's that's I love that about him. Well, and we can leap ahead to um to nineteen. You know, I can we can go circle back, but I'll just leap ahead real quick for you for the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> is that uh you know so in nineteen seventy eight they were working on minute by minute the doobies and they were having a terrible time trying to finish what a fool believes. And they, the thing with the song that Ted said, it said it just didn't sit right. I just couldn't, the groove wasn't right. And at the time, the Doobies had two drummers. And so right. Ted's, in the, Ted's in the studio with Don by his side. He's got Chet McCracken and these other guys. You know, these very these very good drummers. Oh, yeah. These guys who have done many yeah. albums for the Doobies. John Hartman, who people already, you know, had played on 10, probably eight albums with the Doobies already. And, and so at one point, Ted was just at the end of his rope, just frustrated because he couldn't explain, like he couldn't basically uh, convey what he was trying to say. And Don said, right. you should go play it. I'm sure you've heard this story. Right. And Don's like, what? Ted's like, what? Jimmy, Don's like, go play it. You know what you want, go play it. <laughs> and so the actual take on the record is Ted playing with one of the other dudes. I'm not sure off the top of my head which one it was. Anyway, one of the other drummers of the doobies, Ted was on the, that's the right. take on the record. Um, Ted plays drums on that record, and he, and he said that was just like a hail mary because I just couldn't. I was, <laughs> we were running out of time, and I just it wasn't those guys couldn't do it. I couldn't explain it. He's like I had to play right. it, and that was just. A, and Don was like, "We got it." Like, and they said they had boxes and boxes of tapes stacked up trying to get this thing right. He said it was just an absolute, you know, it was just the, like the worst experience of trying to get it right. Um, they were just all so frustrated, and then they got it, and it was just this big, big, big breakthrough. But yeah, Ted played on what the number one hit, "What a Fool Believes." That's Ted's Ted on drums. That, wow, I never I, did that. I, I love that story. Well, listen, before we we you know we'll jump into obviously Van Halen. Couple things about Montrose. Does he talk about uh, in your book, uh, Greg, working with Sammy Hager on that first Montrose album? Because of course he worked with him. You know, obviously later with Van Halen and Carnal Knowledge, and he actually did one of the uh, uh, Hager solo albums. Was a VOA or something? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he talk about um, working with Sammy in, in the early days of Montrose and how that experience was? And if he knew at that time that Sammy was going to be this mega singer, I, you know, I, I, he would. I think he would tell you that he knew Sammy was enormously talented. I think with working with that band, Ted was really locked in, probably more on Ronnie, just because they had the relationship previously. Like that was sort of he was like the band leader. But you know, I, I, Ted thinks. Sammy Hagar is a monster singer. I mean, he'll tell you that over and over and over again. It's like, Sammy's incredible. Sammy's incredible this day. He's incredible the first time I heard him. Um, you know, and I think Ted, if I remember correctly, when we talked about, um, you know, Sammy, basically, Sammy was green. That was Sammy's first record. Yeah. You know, that was the thing that, was that young guy, Ronnie right? had the advantage of. Ronnie had played with Edgar Winter. Ronnie, Ronnie had toured with uh, with Edgar. He played on the Van Morrison records and, and even Bill Church had had experience, but Ronnie and, and Carmasi were green. So I think that was part of the thing too. It was, it was um, you know, kind of helped those guys along, kind of coach them through the process more so than the other guys in the band. But, um, you know, Ted is it's like one of these things, like it's like a, a, like a love of your life that doesn't happen or something. Like Ted always talked about the Montrose record as just sort of, he wanted those guys to be compensated for what he thought was a brilliant, brilliant record from top yeah. to bottom. And that's what he was just said. He felt like he, he always talked about it as the metaphor of being the pilot of the plane, you know, like you're, you're the pilot you, as a producer, you know, you got like, you're supposed to land the plane, like get it out, you know, get it on the ground. And we just didn't do it. I just, it's a bumpy landing and crash. And it wasn't like a total flop, but he said, it just was like a bumpy landing. And everyone's like, what happened? You know, I don't know. I thought I, 
I thought we had everything perfect, and it just didn't. Well, it seemed it to me it, that Warner Bros. I mean, I didn't get into that Van Halen. I mean, the the uh, Montrose album until probably the the later seventies. So I wasn't aware when it first came out. But it seemed to me there wasn't a big buzz because I had heard, you know, early on Aerosmith and a lot of these other bands, you know, uh, you know Bachman Turner Overdrive, all these you know bands that were huge on on the radio. And I always thought, you know, Rock Candy that was kind of a it was played a little bit, but that was a real catchy tune. I mean, it was obviously very heavy. But the thing that's really sad is I think that album, because a lot of people talk about their follow-up album in 74, Paper Money, as being this epic failure. Because I think they tried too hard maybe to get like a radio song or something that could get on the radio. And it just, I mean, you had one one of their greatest songs, I Got the Fire. And, you know, I thought Space Age Sacrifice was a good song. The song Paper Money, there were were a couple good, some good songs. But compared to the first album, it was like... This right. band is just trying too hard, you know, and, and, and people saw right through it. And I think that goes with all the latter Montrose albums from, mm-hmm. from Jump On It to Warner Brothers Presents to, you know, then Ronnie started getting real too experimental, you know, and then he got into the gamma stuff. And it was like he was kept chasing that 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 sound to get popular. But if that first Montrose album got the respect it deserved back yeah. then... I think it would have just been a total game changer. It would have changed, you know, Montrose too. It would have probably kept yeah. Sammy with the band and they would have been a monumental kind of Aerosmith kind of American hard rock metal band. Do you, what do you guys think, Jimmy? Which- I absolutely agree. And again, you know, I mean, look, uh, I think anybody can, you know, you can see it when it happens, like when Led Zeppelin, you know, they had a, they had good stuff and then they released They Were to Have It and then they became this other thing. And Aerosmith, out of the box, does Dream Dream On and, yeah. and, and they become something other than, you know, uh, and, and the ballad and that, that like, like everyone was talking about so far is that they had to get on AM back then. And of course, for us in the 80s, it was uh, AOR versus CHR, you know, and, and that, that still stood there. It was still like, do you guys have the ballad? Do you guys have the ballad? And, and that was the thing that I, I really respected about Ted because we really didn't want to be a ballad band. Now, do I regret it now? Because I think we, we put our heels in the sand because we just really wanted to be, stick to our guns and be a rock outfit. Right. And uh, and I don't regret it now. I, I really don't, even though, like, you know, the, the, the bands who I toured with, like the Skid Rose and so on, and they have ballads and they sold millions of albums, and that's great. But I love the fact that I can listen to that monstrous record of the first Van Halen record, and that, to me, is what spawned, like I said, thousands and thousands of kids. Nothing against those ballads, but those ballads didn't spawn, you know, a Randy Rose to pick up a guitar. I mean, yeah. it was a monstro yeah. stuff, you know. And it, like, you know, Zach Wilde put in Van Halen and was like, what the hell is going on? I need to change my life. You know, Tom Morello listened to Eddie Van Halen without a ballad on the record, and that's what began that revolution. So to me, I think that, you know, Teddy, again, and I know everyone looks back with 2020 Vision, but those bands, I believe that they spawned generations of rock musicians that kept our business going for many years. And that's the thing that I still listen for in music, you guys, is a band that plays with heart and soul and isn't trying to sell a record. They're just trying to get their message out that we play, we play rock and roll music and we love what we do. 
So that that's why I think those records are still better than any of the other records that were out after them. They just they were true. They were true rock and roll records. Yeah, I can agree with you more, man. And that's one thing I really appreciate about that that debut Bullet Boys record. It it was just straight ahead, full on rock. And, uh, you know, at that time yeah. in 88, all the, you know, as they call them now, hair metal bands were doing those stupid, sappy power ballads. And it and it yeah. was just getting yeah. so old. I mean, I love the old 70s ballads. I mean, you bring up Dream On. I mean, Love to Love by UFO, uh, Beyond the oh, Realms yeah. of Death by Judas Priest. Those are ballads. Yeah. Those are classic yeah. ballads. But when it came to the 80s, they were so formulated. They were just so exactly syrupy. And, and, and it was like, and I thought it was just refreshing that that the debut Bullet Boys album, because that came out really in the heart of, you know, the power ballads where they were all over MTV. Right. You just put up a straight ahead kick-ass rock album. And I, I love that. Yeah, and it, it was... It, it was unapologetic, and that's what I loved about that first record. When we listened back to it, you know, at One on One Studio, we sat there and we listened back to all the big speakers, and and I really felt like this was a statement. This was about you know uh, being true to what rock and roll was, and when we were kids, you know, I mean, like the first time you saw, like you said, you know, Aerosmith and Black Sabbath and Nugent and and you know ACDC and Van Halen, you know, that was like. You know, it was life-changing, and I'm not saying that that's what our record was for people. That's for other people to say if it had that effect on them. But I just, I felt that 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 thing that I felt when I listened to those records, I felt it for my own record. And that was something that I didn't expect to have happened. But, of course, having a Ted Templeman at the helms, he landed that plane exactly like it was supposed to. You know, it, it was a great rock record. And uh, and again, like I said, you know, we got the, the comparison to Van Halen early on, and, and I wish to God we were that good of a band in that sense, but that first Van Halen record, like the Montrose record, you know, I don't care where you are or who you are, but if you're in the rock and roll community and you hear that that, that backwards or that, that car horn, yeah, I mean, that's, something's landing on planet earth and it's about to change your world. And, and so I was grateful that I was even a part of the lineage of Van Halen. Man. Well, let's, uh, should we get into Van Halen, Greg? What do you think? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, let's talk about that first album. Cause I, I remember the day that came out and you know, it, it, it just took off like, like, and, and the, the other thing about Van Halen is they became, you know, they, they toured with black Sabbath and they were a great live band. And that all comes to the, the fact that they pounded it out in the clubs for many years. They pounded mm-hmm. out in backyard parties in Pasadena. And that's something today people don't realize. Everyone thinks, Oh, Van Halen was just this new band. They came out in 78 and boom, all of a sudden exploded. But, you know, as you know, and as, if, if I, I can't emphasize, you know, enough to read uh, Greg's uh, previous book, the, Van Halen Rising, how much work yeah. and effort uh, Van Halen and, and all those bands of that 80s, uh, you know, a lot of the 80s, uh, you know, glam or hair metal bands, as they call it, they worked their way up for many years in the clubs before they started getting recognition. Uh, you know, talk about 78 when that first album came out. Yeah, um, it's funny you you you, uh, you mentioned the the the, uh, the the breakout of the record. The funny thing is that in terms of, in terms of all their hard work, you know, and, and Ted wasn't the wasn't necessarily the only guy who would who would have had uh, not known this or or would have known this, but when Ted got the call from Marshall Burrell, who later went on to manage Rat and was working at the Whiskey at the time, Marshall's the one who tipped off Ted about Van Halen and in the in the forthcoming uh, autobiography. Ted it makes very clear he's like I never had heard the name Van Halen before. You know, Ted was Ted's offices were what you know whatever Burbank to Hollywood, not that far. He's like I never had even heard of this band, but Marshall was like, you got to go check out this band. Yeah, you know the thing that that I think people will like about the book is that 
uh, in terms of the Van Halen stuff is that Ted and I did a lot of work on the studio sessions for the first Van Halen record in, in Van Halen Rising. And there is quite a bit of that. I mean, there's obviously a lot of that in the book, but Ted also talks about the sort of the atmosphere in this, in his biography that's coming out, talks about the atmosphere inside Warner Brothers about Van Halen. And he's, you know, he said it was, it was kind of demoralizing for him because the way we phrase it in the book, he said, it's like, it's like you're in high school and you've got this new girlfriend. You think it's the greatest girl you've ever met. She's so hot. You like, and all your friends are like, yeah, she's all right. And they're just sort of, and he said, that was kind of the attitude inside Warner Brothers. It was sort of like, well, you know, Ted likes this band, Van Halen, and, you know, maybe they'll sell some records for us, but we're not expecting much out of this band. It was, you know, all these other, you know, we kind of know the cliche, like the Sex Pistols and whatever else. So it was, it was kind of seen that they were sort of, you know, uh, a dinosaur, a latecomer. It was kind of over, but this was Ted's little pet project. And, you know, people knew that right. Ted had good ears and that Ted, you know, it wasn't like people thought, like, yeah. it's not, not going to sell any records at all, but they never expected it to, to blow up. And Ted said that was really... Ted said, I thought I had made this incredible record. I thought I kind of rectified some of the mistakes I'd made with the Montrose record. I thought we had the songs, the players, the whole thing. And, and so, you know, Ted talked about how much he tries, you know, out of his love for those guys, how, how much he worked to push that band behind the scenes. And Ted's not trying to take credit for their success, but he's saying like, you know, it wasn't like, it's like, oh, the new Doobie Brothers record's coming out. It's 1977. So of course the whole, the whole record label is like focused on Doobie Brothers, right. Doobie Brothers, so they know that's the next big seller. He said, Ted's like, how to get people like motivated? Be like, hey, guys, you know, this can sell. Let's go. Let's, you know, let's, you know, kind of like the cheerleader behind the scenes as a vice president of Warner Brothers, kind of like, you know, pulling some levers to make sure that people didn't neglect the band. And, um, you know, Ted gives full credit to those guys that his songs, the whole, the whole package, they did it. But, you know, Ted said he really felt like he had to put his fingers on the scales to help those guys get the proper support because it was just not seen as a priority by a lot of people. Cause it was just like, Oh, this LA heavy metal band, well, whatever we got, we got Fleetwood Mac. We've got, you know, we've got, we've got right. all these other things that sell are selling 10 million copies. We don't need, you right. know, we don't care about this. As I say, you, you bring up uh, uh, the timing is so important. I can see why they would probably think that or because in the late seventies in LA, New Wave hit, and that was the yeah. huge thing. Punk and New mm. Wave were happening, and you had bands like the Knack and the Plimsolls and all this coming out. You know, as as, as you know, uh, Greg, I did the, the the first Inside Metal title was the Pioneers yeah. of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal, which really covers that 70s scene. And even though the clubs, the Starwood, you know, you had bands like, you know, Legs Diamond and Snow and Smile, and even Yesterday and Today, that would come down from the Bay Area. They were packing in the Starwood yeah. and all the clubs, and but record companies would have nothing to do with it because as you said hard rock and metal by 1978 was considered dinosaur rock black sabbath right. deep purple i mean of course zeppelin still had you know uh, their name but in america but a lot of these other bands you know the labels did not pay any attention but it's so funny you said because i just today i, I did a little thing here on, on live uh for my facebook and somebody asked me what alley band i felt uh, never uh, should have made it that didn't get their just desserts when it came to success. And I said the band Snow. Uh, I, mm, I I, I still band. believe that 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 Ten Inches of Snow record is yep. like it's to me it's like it could have been like a Van Halen record. It's just it was such an amazing record. And like you said, and I'll tell you what stuff you guys said. Being on the inside for just a, a couple of good years there at Warner Brothers, that I I do recall that was it. It was like. The label believed in the things that were selling, that were making the money. And and then Teddy would have to explain to them, well, you guys, we're not going to get a new Doobie Brothers if you just keep working the Doobie Brothers. You have to go on and find another Doobie Brothers, right. and that's how you do it. It's, it's the next one is the band called Van Halen. Now, 
it's not going to be the Doobie Brothers, but it's going to do the same yeah. difference as far as it's going to make this label bigger and stronger and better. And and I remember him, you know, you know having to talk them into doing things sometimes where they didn't really want to. I mean, yeah. him and Mo and Lenny were like, they were the guys for a minute there, but I do recall him having to butt heads with people say, no, I'm sorry, guys, that is, you're wrong. We need to do it this way. I know for a fact. And, and again, remember, that was the thing also, you guys, that bands will never know for the last 20 years, will never have the experience of, is, is a label that actually works a band. Yep. Where they sat there and they allow you to make a record that doesn't sell. And they say, don't worry, let's get back in the studio. Let's work yep. on it more. Let's, let's get you on the road. And, and they help the band to grow legs. Where now, if your first single, not your first record, your first single doesn't do it, you're done. Yeah. And and, and that to me is, is a sad state for music because how are these musicians going to grow? I mean, first record of anybody that ever comes up for the most part, except for Van Halen and Montrose and you know Led Zeppelin. I mean, most first albums from bands aren't very good. Oh, you look at ACDC, Scorpions, all those bands. It took them like five yes. or yeah. Judas Priest. It took them five you or know, six records before they even went and, gold. And think about this. Had those bands come out today, they would never have grown to have those records they had after that. Yeah. You know, and that's, again, for me, I'm so blessed to be a part of the industry that when we all were, were around watching and learning and seeing how these things were done, you know, and guys like Ted Templeman, who were literally were the pillars to help get bands like Van Halen and other bands, you know, their careers. I know he, and you're right, Greg, because I've asked him, you know, because I'm such a huge Van Halen fan, and I try not to talk Teddy's ear off. We used to call Ted Tedward. That's how, <laughs> 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 he's a combination of Edward and Ted. But uh, I used to ask him questions about the Van Halen crew all the time, you know, and, and he was honest with me a lot of stuff. But, you know, it, it was uh, for me, I had to, he told me this, Jimmy, he goes, you have to become yourself because I, I wanted so badly to be Alex Van Halen. I wanted his drum sound. I asked him what symbols he used. He goes, he goes why would you want to use his symbols? I go, because they're great. I go, and that snare drum sound, I would love that snare drum sound. And he goes, Jimmy. He goes, that's Alex. You need to find Jimmy Deanna sound. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> so, again, just, just great times with that guy, man. Teddy, man, doing that Van Halen record, though, changed the world, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. Let me ask you guys, uh, you know, when it comes to production, that's why I think, you know, Van Halen, that was really, the, the timing was right for them, you know. Uh, the, the, the scene needed something new, especially from an American band. Uh, and that first, you know, right. everyone knows the influence of that first Van Halen record. But I think a lot of people really downplay the production of that album. And not just the production, but Ted Templeman's, you know, whole uh, influence on the album from, you know, I mean, because you look, listen to some of the, early, the demos that Van Halen done, which were great and they were raw. But you could totally hear how Ted Templeman honed that band home yeah. that record and and you know we can get into some right. of the studio tricks he did in getting eddie's guitar tone you know with the microphone down the hallway and all this other stuff i mean they really it, it's just the perfect record for that time and people don't realize the amount of effort that the, that the producer uh really put into this do you do, would you agree on that uh, greg i, I would or, definitely agree yeah, let Jimmy go, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. Go, Jimmy. Yeah, again, like I said, you guys, I mean, I think we've all heard, I don't know if you guys ever heard the Gene Simmons demo yes. of, of the Van Halen stuff. And, and look, I'm not trying to put anybody down, okay? That's not, that's not my, my gig in life. But you can hear the absolute difference between the life, the breath of life that Teddy Absolutely. has on those songs versus... What what Gene and his crew did with them. Nothing against with that, but you know, you play them back to back, you go, oh my God, Ted 
has this ability to, again, let instruments breathe, let uh, musicians do their job, and then he just then sprinkles that, that, that pixie dust, you know, and gets everything exactly where it's supposed to be, man. So that's, that's awesome stuff, man. Mm, Greg. The other thing, too, is that uh, I was going to say that in, in uh, thinking about the record, the first record, too, you know, Ted really talked quite a bit about how, you know, those guys were so fun and the vibe was so fun. And he said, that's really yeah. what you want to try to get. You want to get the person. He always said, I wanted to try to get the personality of the artist on the record. Uh, he said, I always tried to think of myself as a lighting guy. And of course, that's, you know, he's kind of underplaying his role as a producer. But what he means is that, you know, I'm not trying to like basically take a cookie cutter and go, I need another Michael McDonald. So here, you're going to sing right. like Michael McDonald. You're right. going to sing like David Lee Roth. You're going to, you know, he said, I want to get the person's, the artist, uh, the band, the, the vocalist, whoever it is he, he's producing. I want to get them uh, to shine through. And that's why he said, you know, my records, whether it be Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, Bullet Boys, Nicolette Larson, they none, they none of them sound the same. He's like, I wanted it to, to dial in their sound. And so, you know, he, he really talked about how with the first Van Halen record, the reason why, you know, it, it sounds fun is because he said the guys were fun. He's like, you know, that's why we left a couple of mistakes on the record. And it was just a matter of kind of letting Dave's personality going through rather than trying to, you know, you know, basically uh, overthink some of the stuff with Dave. You know, they definitely worked. He definitely worked really with Dave to try to get his his vocals in the best uh, possible yeah. shape for the record. But he, you know, he, he wanted his, Dave sounded like he was having fun, and that's what Ted was trying. You know, because he was, and he's like, I didn't want to like yeah. take that life out of me. You know, don't go. Oh, Eddie's playing is some producers. Well, Eddie's playing is too wild. I need to die. You know, no, let him. You know, let him do what he does. You know. Um, you know, and he, said, he said that was one of the things that was a breakthrough for him kind of going through. He goes, this is, Van Halen's not, I'm not sure, again, I'm trying to put any other bands out, but they're not Journey. They're not, for, they're not that type of right. like band where he's like, it's got to be, you know, they're a little rough around the edges. They're fun. They're the, the guys that are going to come in the room and knock over the beer bottles. Let, let it get it, that on the record, that kind of vibe on the record. I think that's really yeah. what he's talking about, letting it breathe. It's like, you can, you know, all great rock records have that, to one degree or another, that, that vibe where there's cashmere and you hear it and you go wow man that's like transporting me to you know another country you sort of had that incredible feeling when you listen to it and right. Hill record sounds like a party you know in yeah. some ways and that's what i think yeah. i did with bullet boys too the same thing you guys had that same sort of just i mean like the, the energy the youth the top testosterone all that stuff came through where it wasn't like a it didn't feel like you know uh, you know basically like clamped down and restrained it feels right wild. it became you know, the los know, angeles I, beach I, sound kind of you know if, if you look at Van Halen, right. it, it had that. And this is before you had videos. So you could just kind of listen to the record and picture that, you know, Van Halen. And as you say, even the Bullet Boys, it was that L.A. sound. The sound mm -hmm. of going to the beach, right. having you know, fun, you, beautiful girls around you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I once asked Teddy about the, because um, I don't know if you guys are aware, because I mean, I, I, I still, to this very day, I will study Van Halen records like, like I'm taking a quiz next week. But uh, I asked Ted one time, I go, Teddy, I go, how come there are no rhythm guitars on a lot of the, uh, the Van Halen records uh, during the guitar solos? Because that's kind of like standard for most fans is, is that right. the guitar player puts the rhythm track that under his guitar solo. And Ted looked at me and just in perfect test fashion, he goes, because it didn't need it. Yeah. Mm, and I perfect. was like, holy oh, shit, <laughs> it can be that simple? Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's sort of like that, that's the thing about, you know, there's so many great producers and there are so many not so great producers, but the great ones have that kind of intuitive sense of like, you know, Jimmy Page, obviously, when he knew how to layer all those guitars together, he kind of made it all right. fit. 
And, you know, you don't, you never heard like the, you never kind of saw the scenes. Like even if there was like eight guitar tracks on it, it all felt like kind of natural together. And Ted was the same sort of, had the same sort of um, way with, with songs. You know, look, he did the same thing with the, with the Bullet Boys record, which I, I still listen to to this day. I love Ted Lett kept it raw. I mean, it is, it is yeah. in some ways yeah. as raw as any, as any record you're going to have out of the eighties. It doesn't sound like a studio produced Dial, you know, dialed in record. I mean, the tones are out of this world, but it just sounds like four guys in a room. It's a live sounding that. record. Yeah, I, I agree. Totally. Yeah, totally. I think the thing about um, Ted Templeman and that Van, first Van Halen album in particular, it was really made for FM radio. It was the game changer. I mean, you had mm. the, the debut Foreigner record that came. Uh, I can't. I guess it came out around the same time, and you know, Ario right. Speedwagon or the Journey Infinity record, and these were all huge FM radio. Albums. I think he had the foresight to see that FM radio is where this band that you can't. And I think he probably learned from Montrose that, like you said, they needed kind of a radio hit. They did the Kinks cover. You really got me. And I think he really knew that FM radio is what's going to break this band apart from touring because they're such a great live band. But he got he was able to get them on FM radio, which is during this time of of new wave mm -hmm. and. And then here comes this right. Van Halen record. And you think of some of the other uh, bands that came out, uh, actually before the first Van Halen album, like Legs Diamond, or the first two Yesterday and Today records, or the Angel yeah. records, or the Stars records. Those albums, you know, they could have been where Van Halen was, because I think mm -hmm. they were all great bands. But there was this, it didn't have that that chemistry of the production and the band together. And I think that's what so many people are missing. Those first couple of yesterday and today records. In fact, Dave Medicati will tell you, he hated the production. They were great songs. I don't think the songs were as good right. as, as Van Halen, mm -hmm. but I think if they had Ted Templeman work those albums, it would have been a whole different story as well as even the angel angel never had a, a radio hit because their songs weren't really right. made for FM radio, but they were a big live band and stars never right. had a radio hit. Legs Diamond had a, two albums, I think, before the Van Halen record came out. And those were great albums, but the production was definitely lacking uh, compared to the first Van Halen record. And uh, again, the time, I, I think if Van Halen shows another producer, like a kind of a no-name producer, or if they just signed with a major, and like, like you said, because no one really cared. Uh, oh, we got our big bands. If they signed with, say, MCA at the time, and they just threw in one of their producers, you know, who knows? Van Halen could have been where... Legs Diamond are now. I mean, I think, again, their songs would have came through, and of course, Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing, but they still could have been more of an underground band and right. without being a mainstream band that they become. Do you, do you uh, agree with that? Obviously, I'm biased at writing the book with Ted, but, you know, I think the thing that, that Ted had that Jimmy's, you know, Jimmy's really made clear is that Ted has this musicality about him as a musician himself and has this ear for songs. You know, all, you know there's producers who are not musicians, Lenny Warnker, for example, is not a musician, which is always interesting to me because the idea that you would, you know, basically not be someone who'd be able to go, you know, kind of hear those things that, you know, like we talk about Ted, like that bass, bass notes out of tune. And even though I guess maybe if you're, if you're a non-musician, non-musician, you kind of develop the ears to hear that. But but that Ted really, I think, more than anything else, picked all the right songs for that first record. If you listen to the Van Halen demos that are on oh, YouTube yeah. now, the Warner Brothers demos. There's lots of good songs in those demos. You know, it's 25 songs, but there are some that are kind of like, you know, like, ah, Ted picked the right songs. Yep. I mean, that's the other thing, yep. too, is that what's, what a great producer should do, too, should go through. And, and Jimmy, sounds like you had the same experience, but you, you guys had demos that Ted went through, and you kind of was like, these are the songs we're going to do. And uh, that was, the, the, the to me, 
the thing that I really got to understand from from talking to Ted so much was that it wasn't just also just picking the songs. Ted talked about how particularly Ed, but all the guys in the band had this ability to be almost modular with their songwriting. So if you listen to the, the Warner Brothers demos on YouTube, you can hear there were parts of one song that later became parts of another song that Ted said he'd be in the basement yeah. with those guys at Ross House and Ted would be like, you know, I don't really like that bridge. And Ed would be like, oh, well, it's an A. Well, I've got this thing. It's from another song. And, and Ted would be like, yeah, that could work. Well, what about that, you know, that one transition? Ed'd be like, oh, okay, I'll do this. And like, Ed was just obviously this musical genius. And he's like, Ted said they were incredible at sort of being able to help him craft the songs. Like he said, almost any time I came up with an idea, you know, I thought, oh, this is a really good idea that Ed would come up with something better. Or would take what I did and kind of move it a little bit in a different right. direction. That like, you know, so with, with Ted kind of being able to be the objective person and be like, that song is not as good as this song. And I think that's really, you know, um, you know, Ted was unfallible in his career, but he had a pretty good record of hit making where he was he was good and had great ears to hear things, you know, kind of help, help those guys figure out what songs were right. But then to be able to woodshed with those guys and they spent a lot of time in Roth's basement together thinking about it. You know, Ted told me, you know, you kind of figure it out, you know, either a song was a no, a maybe or a yes. And eventually, you know, sometimes some of the songs in the maybe went to the yes and sometimes they went to the no. But he said that's how you, he would go through them and just sort of then zero in on the songs and. You know, sometimes you can get that maybe to a yes by changing a chorus or switching things around. Um, and you can hear that from the demos to the, the record. But yeah, they, um, yeah, amazing. Real quick, in my experience, you know, uh, Ted actually uh, did that with one of the songs on the first Bullet Boys album. That was, uh, uh, I, I believe it, it was a real slow, draggy track that we had a demo. We loved it. It was, it was kind of almost a little Black Sabbathy. And then he ended up, he kind of reconfigured the whole thing. It's a song called Badlands. Mm. And, and if you listen, if you listen to that song right now, you'll think like, "Wow, who thought of that?" Because it doesn't sound musically uh, uh, that it, it it makes sense. Oh, mathematically it makes sense, but from a production standpoint, it makes complete sense. And that's where again, Ted with the, like the vocal things that he would do with the Doobie Brothers, uh, he would totally he he could see things in a way that that you as a band can't see them, right. only because. Uh, it's the years of experience on top of being able to like look at a band and know what they're capable of. Yeah. Because you know you don't want to push a band to a place that they're not comfortable in because then they'll do something that they don't feel comfortable with and they're not confident in and it'll show like that on the record. Teddy always knew how to do it where he knew that he could push you further in a place that you probably might not want to go. But once you're there, you look back and you go, "Holy shit, Ted, that sounds great." And that's, again, a, a part of his genius is he's able to do that with songs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Nicolette Larson, uh, who Ted produced, who's now passed away, but she uh, she used to call that when Ted would start doing that with songs, she'd say it was Ted was rearranging the refrigerator. He was like, <laughs> you know, like re- that's what she called it, rearranging the refrigerator. Like, you pull everything out. You're like, I'll put the mayonnaise over here and maybe we'll have the mustard. And she's, so apparently she had a lot of fun with busting his balls about that. You know, that's great. Basically, you know, to have the song and like, you know, that she would think it was good enough and he would like take it and change it, you know, and like say, Oh, it's going to be better this way. Trust me. And she'd be like, okay, you know, yeah, come back two hours later and see where you're at. Let me ask you some, Greg, I go uh, on the first Van Halen album. Cause you're mentioning that Ted was unfamiliar with the band when they were, uh, you know, in the clubs and didn't realize what they were all about until, uh, you know, uh, he first met with them. Having the song eruption as basically a guitar solo, yeah on the record was kind of unheard of back then on a, you know, commercial major label album, especially to follow 
the first song on the record. You really got me. Obviously, he must have been blown away hearing you know Eddie Van Halen for the first time. Uh, but he, you, as you said, he hadn't really seen them live prior to uh, doing the record. Is that correct? No, he saw them live, but he had never heard the band before Marshall. Like in other words, you, you know, they they had played around LA, they had played at Starwood, they played at Whiskey, sure. they played everywhere for years. But Ted had never seen or heard of the band before Marshall Burrell said, "I got this band, Ted. I think you like. They do harmonies." They've got a really good sound. I think you're going to like this band. And Ted said he knew Marshall from the 60s from Harper's Bazaar. Marshall was a booking agent for uh, William Morris, I believe. And so he said, you know, I I knew Marshall had been around some good bands. Marshall had booked the Beach Boys. And Marshall, you know, Marshall was someone who understood what what good talent was. So I said, what the hell, I'll go down there and check it out. But he had had no no prior experience of of the band name. But the night he saw them in February 1977, Ted said it was like, falling in love with a chick when he saw Ed. I mean, he said, that's what he actually calls it. It was like, it was like falling in love with a girl. It was like, it was incredible. He said, you know, he said, I liked the band, but I was just blown away by Ed's musicality. He said, it, you know, Ted grew up a jazz trumpet player along with playing drums. Ted was a uh, jazz player. And so Ted said, he reminded me of Charlie Parker, the bebop player. He said the way that he wow. would kind of slide in and out of the, 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 um, the measures mm-hmm. and do all these unusual fills that didn't seem to didn't seem to fit within a rock context these jazzy things and so he said that i was just like blown away by eddie van halen he said i thought you know i thought the songs were were pretty good you know i thought the singer was you know was good you know basically but it was like i gotta get this guy that's what he really you know and when ted says that he always says like i feel badly because i don't want you know dave or alice the other guy saying i didn't like the band i did like the band but he's like that was sort of because i was a jazz player that's what kind of the, the sort of the musicality and the way that ed put together his lines and the way he played rhythm and all this stuff. It just sort of, you know, he said, I was just like starstruck by that. And that's what he really wanted to capture on the record. Sure. And I think that's the thing too, is that that was the whole thing about eruption is that eruption was a, a last minute addition. It was actually ah. not meant to be on the record. Um, the way the story goes, Ted told us before, but we told, talk about it in some more detail in the book was that Ted heard Eddie um, in the studio, you know, they were going to cut the last couple songs for the record, but they were at the very end of the, of the recording process, had heard him playing this thing, Eruption. It was playing it, Ted was walking by because he was getting a cup of coffee, and he like, goes in, you know, opens the doors, goes in the studio, and goes, what, what is that? And he's like, oh, just something I play. You know, being very modest and kind of shy, like, what, what, what do you mean? You know, I was like, what do you mean something you play? He's like, oh, it's my live so- solo at the studio. We're going to play the whiskey later this week or whatever. I'm practicing it goes we gotta record this and the way ted tells the story he had he went back in the studio and and ed started you know playing it again or something and the and you know he was basically trying to track down alex and and mike to do the rest of the thing i guess ed had told him you know it's the thing i do with ed, alex and mike and uh he looked at don landy and said we got a roll tape on this and don said i already am like don and ted <laughs> were so locked in don could see that ted was like real all of a sudden ted like was like kind of had his like antennas up and was like uh, you know in the you know going what's this what's this and like don said he you know loaded the tape up was already rolling tape and they they recorded it recorded it twice and yeah that's the, the you know i think the second take is the one that's on the record i think wow totally groundbreaking wow. to include a, a guitar solo on on a record and of course that was you know eddie van halen's signature so that's what attracted all the guitar players. Everyone yeah. tried to emulate that. And that was that was genius to add that on. And I don't think any other producer, you know, or, or any other record label for that matter, they would say, are you fucking yeah. crazy putting a guitar solo on a record? Do, do, do you guys remember what they put on the back of the first Van Halen record because of that guitar solo? Do you no, no. What, what, are you, what are you thinking of? No, no. 
on the on the first Van Halen record, it said uh, uh, on the back of the record, there are absolutely no keyboards on this record. Thought <laughs> that was somehow connected to a keyboard or a keyboard. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Forgot that. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, honestly, I'm sure Ed Van Halen tells us tells us too. If it had been up to him, he wouldn't have put it on the record. He was like, like, kind of like, what? What? Like, he, like you guys are saying, like, why would we put this on the record? It's not a song. So amazing, right? That Ted was like, sort of like, no, we're doing this. We're putting it on, and they recorded it. So yeah, I said it was just a, you know, it's kind of a serendipitous moment, just hearing it, and said, yeah, let's record but it again. To speak on on the genius of Ted, he saw it. He said, no, 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 no. Not only is this on the record, this is the second song on the record. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. to me was such a statement. And when you're a young, questionable rock kid, and you put on the Van Halen record, and the second song is this fucking ripping your face off guitar solo, you're never the same. He knew that people would, he would spawn thousands of kids after that that would go on to become the Yngwie Malmsteins and like I said, the George Lynch and down the line. I mean, that was just so groundbreaking. I mean, it just was incredible, man. But you know what? I think it was too, it, I mean, it seemed to me, I don't know if it, it kind of seemed to me like it was a fuck you to punk rock. Yeah. You know, they, they just kind of did... Nothing about musicality, nothing about virtuoso musicianship. It's just about playing, you know, raw and whatever. But that just kind of showed like hard rock and metal killer guitar playing. And it's just in your face. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's like you said, second song, total shredding solo. It's just like, fuck you, punk rock. <laughs> and then this, this process that there's now on the second record, there's Spanish Fly. And then he does uh, Mean Streets. He does this, this weird thing. The intro, I mean, that's what, what the, the great thing about Teddy is that then it, it spawned this guitar hero generation. Yeah. Yeah. I love to guitar players go into rehearsals, practice their asses off, and come up with some amazingly cool shit. I mean, they don't do that anymore. And, and I honestly believe, don't get me wrong, because I think for me, Hendrix was like the touchstone. But what Eddie Van Halen did, and, and Ted saw that night that he said, Greg, is that he saw a guitar player and he knew that this was the beginning of something that nobody ever saw coming. Because the, the guitar shredder, the Eric Clapton's of the world were kind of in the past. And yeah. here was the birth of this, this rebirth of this, this where you, people are going to look at the guitar uh, differently and never look at it the same way ever again. And Ted saw that when he saw Ed that night. And again, you know, I'm blessed for it because we all got to live through it, you know. And I got to correct myself because I, I, I remember just talking about that being the second song. I think earlier in this podcast, I said it opened with You Really Got Me. Uh, which obviously is a third song. Uh, yeah. And I'm saying that because I know some, yeah. I'm going to get some emails. Dude, you don't even know Van Halen <laughs> running with the devil opens up that album. So, all right, I'll make that clear now before we move on. Self-correction, yeah. You're correct now before you get the emails. Believe me, dude. These, these, I mean, I love the metal fans, but sometimes they're like, dude, you fucked the up. Bob no Bandit, you made a mistake. You don't know your metal. Oh, <laughs> so, my God. Anyway, uh, I don't know how much time oh, yeah. you guys got, but I figured we could, uh, you know, kind of end this and get into, you know, talk about the Bullet Boys albums. You know, obviously he did not just a debut record, but he did three records uh, mm-hmm. with the first three albums with the Bullet Boys, which is uh, pretty astonishing. And, and and all three great records and uh, unbelievable production. Um Talk a little bit about the uh, growth from the uh, first record uh, to Freak Show to Zaza. Well, I'll tell you what was interesting for me personally. And uh, remember, the band, I was only in the band for like six shows, and then we got signed and we did that record. So a, a lot of what that first record is about is just is like this new melting pot of musicians of my style in finally mixing with, with Mick and Lonnie and Mark's style. And, and, and it was this really 
it, it worked well. And I, know, I remember Teddy saying this, that had any other, if there wasn't one guy in the band that, that wasn't what it was, he probably wouldn't have signed it. He, he loved the band as a four piece. He thought that we had a very unique sound. And he, and he did every now and again say, you know, he goes, it's not like Van Halen, what you think, he goes, but it is Van Halen because you guys are fun. You guys don't have, have, a, have a good time in the studio. And he goes, and that's something that, that translates in your music. But um, so the first album was, was very, you know, like, like introducing yourself to somebody and then, you know, beginning the, uh, the, this process. But by the time we toured on that first record, which was, I think we toured for almost 14 months or something like that on the first album. We, we got home. Unfortunately, our singer, Mark, had, 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 a, uh, he had uh, nodules on his throat, so he had to go for surgery and he had to go away for a minute. And then, uh, so the band wrote most of the Freak Show record uh, uh, when he wasn't around. And then when he came back, you know, he contributed in a lot of ways that made that record what it was, because to me, that record was more of what the sound of the band was going to be like if we had went further down after the Zaza record. I really felt that the Freak Show record really was like, okay, this is us as a band, you know, and I'll tell you, I know, I know it's weird how, you know, the Teddy does this thing where he brings in all these kind of like different uh, perspectives into one situation. But uh, so there's a song on the second record called Hang On St. Christopher. It's a, a Tom Waits song right. uh, minus the chorus. And, uh, and so he had, of course, you know, he, he, it was his idea to do that song, which was, a, I think, is a great idea because who would ever thought to cover a Tom Waits song? And uh, especially Hang On St. Christopher because it's kind of abstract. And uh, so we were, we were kind of messing around with it one day. And, uh, and then Teddy goes, you know, it needs percussion. And, and I don't just mean like a towel bath, because I got, I got towel bath. I can just, oh, and, and he says, no, no, no. And he goes, he goes, I, I goes I, I'm going to make a phone call. He goes, uh, he goes, you guys, go break for lunch early, uh, and, and we'll come back, and we'll start tracking at about 2 or 3 o'clock. So we break for lunch, and we're just hanging out. And then um, I see a guy bringing in uh, uh, congas. I see, like, you know, a, a whole setup of, like, an actual a grown-up uh, percussive setup. So we get back in there, and then Ted goes, okay, you guys. So what I did is I, I called, and I'm using uh, uh, air quotes. I brought, I'm bringing a friend of mine in to help cut this song out. We need hand drums, and they've got to sound just right. I don't have time to bring someone for rehearsal. We're going to do it in one take, and the guy's coming over. And I'm like, absolutely great. So we go out to the big room, and then... To my left, walks out Ted Templeman, of course. Got, he's got a cowbell and he's got a bongo, okay? And he's got headphones on. And I go, Teddy, are you going to play with me? And he, goes, he goes, yes, I am. I said, great. And then walk to the back door. Bobby Lakine from the Doobie Brothers is walking towards me. And I'm like, oh, my fucking God, are you shitting me? And then there, there are uh, uh, gorgas right to the right of me. So literally in, in, in a, like almost like a half horseshoe almost, Bobby McKine from the Doobie Brothers, myself on, on the kit, and Ted Templeman on cowbell and bongos. <laughs> and we, dude, we count the song off. It literally sounds like sex is happening. If there's a term to say audio sex, it's fucking at this moment. It sounds so fucking badass in my can. And I'm just, I'm trying not to smile like a big old buffoon, but I'm so happy. And I, and I keep looking at Bobby McKinney and he's laying it down. And I look over at Teddy and he just gives me the head nod. And I'm like, I, this is, this is the crazy experience. 
So that's what you hear on the Hang On St. Christopher track on the second Bullet Boys album. It's Bobby the Kind, the percussionist, for the Dippy Brothers, to my right, so in the right speaker. And on the left speaker, the cowbell and the bongos is Ted Templeman, and I'm up the middle on, on drums. Wow. So, you know, it was things, things like that that I never would have thought that Bullet Boys would have been capable of. But like I said before, Ted Templeman is brilliant at, at pushing bands into a direction that he knows that they're going to be comfortable in. They don't know it now, but they do. So that record was that, that beginning of that process. So the new songs that we're working on today have those elements. They have mm, bottles cool. and gongs and, cool. and that stuff, you know, because that's a part of what I know this band is, is the sound. And so we just really got to be ourselves in that second record. We got to really enjoy the experience of the recording studio because the first time we were shot out of a cannon. We just, we literally, we had a month to do it and get on the road. Because remember, you guys, we, all, we talked about it already, uh, before 1993 or something, bands really got their, 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 their fuel and they got their, their legs on the road, you know, yeah. whether the album was selling or not, the label said, go on the road, go play fucking shows, go do that stuff while we work this record. So, um, you know, for us, we got to become the band that was on Freak Show. And then by the time we did Zaza, it, it was an unfortunate, you know, because I feel like the band had gone through a lot of drugs and we were all really kind of, you know, starting to spiral. And there was, uh, there was some negative influences, you know, uh, amongst friends and the band stuff. So, you know, as, as the record Zaza, I love the record. It sounds really kind of like it's a combination of Freak Show and the first album. But unfortunately, we weren't really a band at the moment. So that's why the reunited Bullet Boys right now, it feels more like what it should have been after Zaza. So we're really, like I said, I'm excited to be cutting these demos. And I, and I can't wait to play them for you guys. I think you're going to dig them. All right, man. But I, I'm glad you bring that up because those albums, uh, uh, you know, a Freak Show uh, and Zaza as well. I mean, totally underrated. And I think uh, mm-hmm. obviously they came out in the early '90s when you know grunge started to hit, and you know you were kind of one of the latter bands of that that generation of uh, uh, '80s metal, as as they call it. Was it? Do you feel it was mostly the grunge era that was uh, affecting uh, Bullet Boys at the time? Well, I, I, well, I mean, I, I do believe that uh, it, to me, and, and I know a lot of my contemporaries don't like when I say this, but. I believe grunge was a very necessary step for, for, for music as a whole. I believe that I agree. the industry that like, you, like we talk about uh, uh, hair metal had become so stagnant and there was no more soul left. You know, the early days of, of that, of that rock movement, you know, like the rat and the motleys and, uh, um, you know, bands of that nature. I really felt that still had the edge, you know, wasp, the first, the uh, first wasp. Oh, amazing. Great. I mean, there was a lot Talk yeah, about raw records, but you know, oh my god, you know. So you know, by by late eighty eight eighty nine, like we talked about, it was people were just trying to look for that ballad hit, and, and they were they they were cookie cutting. You know, these bands you get the blonde singer, you know, you get the shredded guitar player, and then you get the bombastic drummer, and then that's our formula, and let's go out. And it, there was no, there was nothing. That's why you know, the first time I saw Primus, I was like, oh my god, I love this. This is so great. And, it, it, it took a left turn and I loved it. You know, there were bands that I believe that uh, really were doing music the right way again. And I thought a lot of bands just stopped doing music the right way. So, uh, but yeah, the label did help out, you know, where they could, again, Dave Kaplan, the manager, he, he worked the label, even when they were like, no, and he's like, no, 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 we got to make this happen. Go ahead and 
and keep putting more money into it. We're going to work the band some more. So Dave was, was absolutely stellar in keeping the band working. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe that. I believe that, that the hair metal movement ate itself. I, I believe yeah. that it, more than the grunge period, I think that we ate ourselves. We just we were true to the art form, and we sold, kind of, we sold our soul to the devil, if you will. So, um, yeah, that's what I think. Greg, any last, last thoughts? I, I just want to say that I think it's, like, so cool that Jimmy played on a song with Bobby played on taking it to the, taking it to the streets by the doobies. I mean, that's like that conga on that. Listen to that song, the verses. Is I love it. I mean, that's like the yeah. coolest, right? It's like, there's the, the link oh, all the way back. Believe me. I, I, I literally had to hang up. I, I, that day I left, I called my dad because my dad's a huge Doobie Brothers fan. I told him, you're not going to believe who I just played with right now, man. That's so, so yeah, cool. Thank you, Ted, for that. Are you still in contact with Ted, Jimmy? You know what? Just via uh, email, and, and we write uh, uh, via Facebook. You know, we just check in every now and again because I talk to Jeff Henderson all the time, and, and we've the three of us have been trying to get together a, a lunch or a dinner meeting for like the last few years. But uh, you know, when one of us is is available, the other two aren't, or you know, more likely just one guy can't make it. So we're gonna wait. Hopefully, after again, like we said, after this virus thing goes away, which I forgot about talking with you guys for the last few hours. It's uh, been nice. This all goes yeah. away. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> Once it all goes away, uh, hopefully that Teddy will we'll get together and we'll go get some dinner. All right. Is, is Ted, uh, is is he retired or is he actually still doing projects here and there? I mean, I think he would call himself, uh, yeah, retired in terms of he's not he's not taking on projects. But, you know, he's, you know, I, I always think like, I always say to him, like, you know, someone like drops you in the studio, you're going to do what you do. I mean, it's like, you know, but yeah. it's uh, the, the last thing he did, he did some stuff with the Doobies. And, and um, in fact, those guys have been, the Doobies have been working on new material with a, another producer and, you know, Ted has been listening to it and kind of just been like, you know, kind of, you know, lending ears and you know, this is great. You know, like he, he actually loves the stuff they're working on now that, who, you know, I'm not quite sure what the status of their new recording is, but like, you know, Ted is, Ted still got his head in, the, in, in music, if that makes sense, but you know, right. he's not, um, he's not doing projects. Well, to make the bullet boys reunion complete, I think you should get Ted Templeman to do the new bullet boys record. What do you think, Jimmy? <laughs> Oh, believe me. Send, listen, listen, I, 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 Jimmy, Jimmy, send the white limo, pick him up, and just bring him over. I mean, you know, you just set him up. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you know, Jimmy knows. I mean, he, you know, you put him in front of a, a, a console. It would, I think, it would just be oh. like right back at it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and again, you guys. I, I mean, look, I never say never anymore. You know, and, and I, you know, of course, it would be completely up to Teddy. But I mean, that would be just such an amazing experience to now uh to do a record now with ted would just be like oh i would just be in heaven because i know because when you're a kid doing it you i mean you know it's special but you don't really know how special now i know how special you know a buddy of mine once told me that uh, he thinks that or he he timed it or something like that there's a ted templeman produced song on aor radio about every five minutes and i was like wow that's crazy well i hope he's getting royalties for those I'm sure he got some points off those records working at Warner Brothers. I'm sure he does. Yeah, <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. Well, the the title of the book, uh, Greg, uh, the Ted. I don't even. I didn't even mention the title. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's easy. It's uh, Ted Templeman, uh, Plat- uh, Platinum Producers, Life and Music it's, uh, on ECW Press. It'll be out April 21st, and uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, and it'll be a audiobook. Audible will be out, ebook, and then paperback. And uh, yeah, I would love people to pre-order, check it out. And I'm looking forward to the new Bullet Boys project, which uh, and the tour. I'm hoping. As far Absolutely. as the audio book, did you actually do the uh, audio book, the uh, narration? 
I did not. And okay. uh, someone asked me if Ted had been uh, was going to do it. No, it's it's you know the the uh, publisher sells the sells the rights to a, a, a audiobook company basically, and they do it themselves. Yeah, oh, that's good. I talked to a lot of authors that had done it on their own, and they said it's it's more it's almost more difficult than actually writing the book. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, like <laughs> line, like line, right. You got to like. Uh, Let's take that again from the top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy. So, uh, Jimmy, what's good? So, you guys are working on some new Bullet Boys uh, upcoming album. Or are you going to do the singles thing and put it out, or, or waiting for a full album to come out? Right now, uh, as it stands, it's just the EP as of right now. So, uh, we're just, uh, you know, again, you guys, we're just trying to have a good time with each other because I feel like, you know, we get right back into that that intense relationship. Uh, it, things might not be good, but we're doing uh, right now. We're just demoing ideas. You know, we're putting together, you know, ideas, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Okay, put that away for now. You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Just put that away for now. Just get the riffs and make sure they're big and sexy because that's that's what that band was all about was big and sexy rock riffs and uh, and that's uh, that, that's what we'll be putting out hopefully somewhere here soon. All right. Well, cool. And I know uh, you guys got uh, Facebook pages. You actually have a Facebook page, Greg, for your uh, Van Halen book. Uh, is that can people still contact you there through yeah, Van Halen definitely. Rising? Yeah, um, the, the Van Halen Rising Facebook page is still there. And of course, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Greg Renoff. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and you know, you can find me on Facebook. I uh, I'll friend most people. There's something we have to like. After the radar goes, mm, I'm not about this person, but I'll friend most people. So yeah, shoot me a friend request, and I'd love to talk rock with people or whatever. And yeah, I'm around. Right on. And Jimmy, you're available for uh, people to contact you. Yeah, uh, there is a Bullet Boys page, but I'm also you know I'm just my name Jimmy Deanda uh, on you know Instagram, Twitter, and also Facebook as well. And I do the same thing that Greg does, where I, I love sitting talking with people about rock and roll so anybody can just contact me and you know just have some, some connection all right gentlemen this was a fun one man i can't can't wait to read your new book uh greg so i uh, look forward to it and uh thank you again man i really appreciate it guys oh it was really fun thank, thank you, you both of you guys all right thanks thanks awesome. jimmy take care gentlemen bye-bye thanks, Bye. thank you for listening to the shockwave skull sessions podcast Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal.